I'm not Tyler, by the way. What's going on, y'all? Actually, before we get started, um, who helped you make the horchata? This guy's is Jackson, Ashlyn, Garrett, Bowen, and you. Can we just get three? Cl- Did you guys try this? Did you guys try this legit horchata? It's super freaking good. So can we get like, I want to do three claps. If, if this might be terrible. I want to do three claps for the group of horchata people. One, two, three. Oh, that was dope. Good work, guys. Uh, welcome back from spring break. Um, yeah, we are, we're getting back into uh, what we're going to get back into. We're going to try and finish the book of Colossians in the next couple of weeks. Actually, next week we're going to finish the book of Colossians. So this is our second to last um, study in the book. We are, um, as Grant read, we're in chapter 3 and the very, very beginning of chapter 4. And uh, so as we dive into this, um, we're going to look at probably the most practical instruction that we're going to get in the book of Colossians. Um, it is like the most intentionally practical stuff that Paul's going to get into um, in this book. And it's beautiful because as we, look, as we looked at this book, this whole letter that Paul, Paul wrote, this entire like, thought, this letter, um, it's kind of, um, this text tonight is kind of a distillation, like a practical distillation of what Paul's been talking about through this whole letter. And um, so really, if, so what I want to do is I want, I want us to take Think of Colossians like a giant funnel, all right? This giant funnel, and we're going to be at the very, very bottom tonight. And at the very, very top is all this stuff we've been talking about for this whole semester in the book of Colossians. And what is at the top, um, we're going to look at Colossians 1, uh, 15 through 17. This is kind of the governor for like everything Paul built out, all right? So Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that, what we just read, was about as high level that we can get in terms of understanding who Jesus is. I mean, that, that's about the maximum, like, we can, our tiny little brains can understand who Christ is. That's like the highest level. And um, if you'll remember, we've, we've, we've said this word a couple of times, big, big theology word, Christology, right? You guys remember that? Remember the word Christology? Just means the study of Jesus, study of who Jesus is, the theology and the truth surrounding the person and work of Christ. And so what Paul's done throughout this letter is he's taken this huge idea that we just read, and he's taken these huge truths about who Christ is, and he's kind of parsed it out a little bit piece by piece, and he's kind of applying it to specific circumstances in Colossians, in the Colossian church. And what we're going to get tonight is the very end of that application. And so in the, in the, I want you to keep in the front of your minds, as we, as we get into this very practical stuff tonight, I want you to keep those big, huge truths about Jesus as our governor as we kind of get into this. Um, so as the funnel, at the very top of this funnel, really wide, really big, really in, in a way, difficult concepts to kind of understand. And as we get into what we're going to get tonight, we're going to get to the very bottom of that funnel, like the real, as I said, distillation of what, what Paul's been doing throughout this book. Um, and um, it's a very specific thing that Paul's going to get at tonight. It's very, very specific, um, but it's intentionally built out of what is at the top of that funnel. It's intentionally built out of the authority, the preeminence, the beauty, and the, the, the highest level we can understand who Christ is. And so we, as we get into this like practical stuff tonight, it's all built out of these huge truths, okay? Um, 
And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take this huge flyover of the text first. We're going to like take, take this, this big idea in the text and we're going to look at it and we're going to try and understand what this whole thing, how this whole thing kind of fits into the book and fits into the letter. And then we're going to get into it a little bit. All right. So I'm going to read Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1, everything Grant just read one more time. Um, and then we're going to pray and we're going to dive right in. All right. So 3:18 through chapter four, verse one, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that, the, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward." You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So let's pray. Uh, Lord Father, we, uh, we are grateful for your word and revealed truth. And the fact that we could open up your Bible and, and study you and know you better so that we might live more faithfully and more glorifying God. I pray that just as we get into some probably difficult things to, to wrap our, um, our emotions around and um, wrap our affections around God, I pray that um, we would just keep at the, at the center of, of these ideas uh, the reality of the bigness and the, the beauty and the majesty and the glory of who Jesus is. Um, Lord Jesus, we love you and we're grateful for just every minute we get to spend in your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we read those verses for a second time, um, I have no delusions that it was probably, uh, there's probably a couple things that rubbed y'all the wrong way. First and foremost, this entire text is a list of things to do and not to do, right? The whole thing, do this, don't do this. Husbands, love your wives, don't be harsh, right? It's just a list of do's and don'ts. And, um, the reality is most of us, especially our generation, doesn't like being told what to do, right? Like, none of us enjoys being, you know, being instructed in, in, in one way or another, whether it's work, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whatever it is. We don't like being told what to do. Um, it's kind of the wrestling match that humanity has been having since the beginning of time, though. Like, right? Like, Adam and Eve, put in the garden, given one thing not to do, and they did it, Right? Like we just, ha- we, we have this like internal angst against authority, this internal angst against being told what to do and what not to do. And so as we read that, I, I imagine there was probably a little bit of, if I can not use a word there, inside of us as we read that. Um, and second, it is probably impossible for us to escape uh, that feeling we had when we read those first two words of the text, especially in 2018, wives submit. So what I want to do is, if that's a hang up for you, if that, if that it all rubbed you kind of the wrong way, I want to just push pause on whatever that emotion provoked in you. I want you to push pause on that. I want you to push pause on trying to explain that idea away in light of culture. And what I want to do is I want to zoom way out on this text, okay? I want to zoom way out and I want to look at this text in light of the rest of what, we, um, what, what Paul's communicated. Because here's the reality of what we're looking at tonight, okay? Here's, here, here's the big idea. This text isn't about the specific submission of wives to husbands, but about the Christian submission in every relationship to the Lordship of Christ. 
This text is about the Christian's submission to the lordship of Christ in every single relationship. And so uh, that's going to be our, our thesis, our thread that we're going to grab tonight. It's, it's submission to the lordship of Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take that and we're going to actually break that into two little pieces, okay? We're going to do the lordship of Christ. We're going to look at the Lord Christ. And then we're going to look at our submission to it, okay? And so um, as, we, uh, as we look at this, uh, the first piece of that, the lordship of Christ, in order to submit to the lordship of Christ, we need to know what the lordship of Christ is. And so I want to read again what we read at the very beginning Colossians 1, 15 uh, through 17. This is, he is Jesus here, okay? He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Excuse me. Uh, so this, this, this idea of the lordship of Christ is Jesus was before all things. He is above all things. He is the, he is the um, all things were made through him and for him, right? And so the reality is everything in existence, matter, thought, emotions, um, the physical and the spiritual, everything that exists, exists because he wanted it to. Everything exists because he, Jesus, wanted it to. It is by him and through him that all things were created. And so then it is reasonable, as Paul makes argument himself in verse 16, that if he created all things, then all things were created for him. And he then gets to define the purpose of his creation, right? If he created all things, then he gets to define their purpose. Read verse 16 again. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For him. So applying this to our idea today, right? As that text right there is kind of the governor for all application that we're going to look at in Colossians, applying that to relationships, as we just read about, means that marriage, romance, Parenthood, uh, sons and daughters, employment, work, all of it is created for Christ and specifically for his glory. Our relationships exist because it is through Christ who created them and therefore he gets to define them, right? And they exist then to bring glory to God. And I understand this is probably something that like, yeah, we can get it in the abstract. Like, yeah, I totally get that. God created everything. Like the purpose behind it is his glory, right? But either explicitly or implicitly, we rebel against that idea, right? Just like Adam and Eve did. Even the most faithful Christians buy into and believe that lie that Adam and Eve did. That they have authority in some way or another over God. There's a famous poem, most of you probably heard it, by uh, William Ernest Henley, and it's called Invictus. Um, I just want to read it really quick, and it's, it's a beautifully sad way of articulating that idea, okay? So just listen really closely. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. 
Under, my, under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied, yet unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. This is the line you've all probably heard before. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That idea, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's, it's become a tattoo. It's become a bumper sticker. It's become the, the rallying cry of our generation. I am the master of my soul. I am the captain of who I am. I get to define me. We apply that sensibility to our relationships. We apply that sensibility to everything in our life. We like to define what our relationships are supposed to look like. We like to define what marriage should be. Even all of us in here are under 30, except for the old man back here, right? All of us in here are under 30, yet we all think we should, def- we should be able to define what an employ- employment relationship should look like, right? How our bosses should act. Like we all get these ideas from culture, we get these ideas from experience, we get these ideas from our, our friends and our family, and we like to think that we know what a relationship should look like. You see, the problem with all of those influencers is that none of them is the eternal God who created work, who created marriage, who created romance, who created friendship. None of them are the infinite God who demands glory from all of those. See, we whether that's like a cultural we or just we as individuals, um, we are not the captains of our own souls. We are not the definers of pretty much anything. God is the one who defines his creation because he created it. God is the one who defines the purpose of creation because he created it. And to operate otherwise is not only to say that we know better than God, But if it's created for his glory, then it's us effectively saying we know what glorifies God better than God knows what glorifies God. You see, if we subvert the designs of God in in marriage, in work, in whatever it is, we are effectively saying we know what glorifies God better than God does. To do our own thing outside of what the Bible prescribes as good and God-glorifying, to do our own thing is to effectively say that we know better than God. Um, and the way we often frame that like, is like, I know what's best for me, right? This is actually uh, pretty popular. Like there's in sports and you get a sports injury. Um, there's this idea that you know your body best, right? Like, you know, pain, you know, your discomfort, which is all true. Absolutely. Um, but there's this, there's this guy, there's this very real circumstance in the NBA right now. Um, this guy plays for the Spurs and he got injured and his doctors have cleared him to play basketball, but he doesn't want to play because he doesn't trust his doctors. And it's this idea that, that he knows himself better. And there's, there's some, like, there's, there's commentators and pundits and writers out there that say he knows his body best, so he shouldn't be playing. Um, I've, personally, this morning, Jessalyn and I experienced that. We had an ultrasound for our, our little baby Harper, um, cute little baby Harper. And uh, I guess, I don't know if she's cute yet, but I think she is. <laughs> um, anyway, she's, uh, we had an ultrasound and there's like this, this small issue, I guess, with the placenta, Justin's placenta. She's got a weak placenta, and it doesn't give all the nutrients it's supposed to to the baby. And so um, the doctor 
gave her and I some like some just very simple practical things to do to help that um, process to like help her body uh, feed Harper, I guess. And um, as we were walking out of the doctor's office, uh, he kind of just threw this line out there, like you know what's best, you know your body best, you know what's best, just do what you think's best. And I think I don't think he actually meant saying that, but it's just this 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 pervasive idea of I know what's best for me. We were walking out of there, and I'm like, dude. This is 50, 60-something-year-old doctor that spent his life as an OBG, probably knows Jessalyn's body a little bit better than she does, right? Like, Jessalyn has had a lick zero medical training. She's an IT consultant. She has absolutely no idea what a placenta, how a placenta works. So this idea that she knows what's best is kind of ridiculous, right? But more than a doctor who spent his life studying the human body, God didn't just study human relationships. He created them. He designed them. So how foolish is it to think that we know better than God what a relationship should look like? It would be wise of us to actually believe and trust that God knows what God wants and God knows what's best for us. So with that idea kind of governing our text tonight, um, governing these specific instructions we're given at the end of Colossians 3. Um, Keep that idea in mind as we approach these probably difficult things for us to read, okay? Um, And the truth is, as that truth governs this, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that what we're commanded here, what we're given to do and not do here, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that that is what's best for us. And so our point tonight then, the second idea that we're going to get at, is that our submission for our good, right? It is submission to the lordship of Christ. We looked at the lordship of Christ governing everything, and now it is our submission to the lordship of Christ, and that is for our good. Um, And so we have the simple framework with which to understand these instructions. He designed everything for his glory, for our good. And so let's zoom in, let's zoom back in on our text tonight, and um, We're going to look at the first half of it. It's Colossians 3, 18 uh, through 20, okay? Wives, excuse me. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged, all right? And so the obvious theme, as we read all of that, is under one word, family, right? All of that is family. And um, the two kind of spheres we're going to look at specifically tonight, that Paul addresses specifically tonight, are family, what we just read, and work. And so this first one, um, with God being the designer and everything being designed for God's glory, we're going to define family as his family, right? It's his family because family relationships were designed to glorify and to worship God. And so reading those verses, there is then a specific reason for submission, for love, for gentleness, for obedience, and for patience. The very textual motivation in those verses is to please and glorify God, right? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Children, obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. So I want to point this out because as we read this list of do's and don'ts, 
on the surface, it can appear as do these things and it will be good for you. Don't do these things and it will be bad for you. Or do these things that I'm telling you not to do and it will be bad for you. Do's and don'ts because it's good for you. We have this tendency to read the Bible and see first and foremost ourselves and what's good and what's bad for us, right? And so the reason I wanted to point this out is because above the motivation in this text for the do's and don'ts is the glory of God. It's to please God, right? So it's not, don't be a jerk husband, um, rather be gentle and kind because it's good for you. Um, it's good for the health of your family. It's good for those around you. It's don't be a jerk husband because that doesn't please God. We can read these interpret, we, we can, excuse me, the motivation for all of this, all this obedience, all of the obedience to the Jews has often, when we read it that way, nothing to do with God and everything to do with ourselves. We read it selfishly. The focus becomes not God, but us. And so there is a, there is a reason that the whole, that whole first part of what we discussed tonight is we went back to look at the preeminent authority of Jesus is because your motivation for obedience shouldn't be a love for yourself or even a love for others, but preeminently and foremost should be a love for Christ. And you know what's really cool and beautiful about this? What's really cool and beautiful about this is that what glorifies Christ, what brings glory to the Lord Christ, is a beautiful, healthy relationship with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with your family. It's not as if God's telling us to do something that's going to harm us. He's telling us to do something that's good for us, and it's through that good thing that God receives glory. Right? And this is true not just about these specific relationships, but it's true about all of the relationships we have, whether it's our genetic family, our church family, our friends, whatever it is, these good instructions given to us by God are just as joy-producing and satisfying for us as it is glorifying to God. So then, as we read these, these hard things to wrap our emotions around, our reaction shouldn't be explanation and questioning of some of these, these, these verbs, but gratitude that God would give us insight into what glorifies him and what's good for us. We should be grateful God has given us these beautiful things because these beautiful things are what is best for us and what is most pleasing to God. And uh, I think the reality is here, like most of us in here, most of you in here don't have husbands and wives and children. Um, and so this idea can be a little foreign and a little distant and can feel, you know, years and years away, right? Um, but while not immediately applicable to most of you in here, they're absolutely ideals you can strive for. You see, a dude that's angry and, and wrathful and kind of a jerk to his friends isn't going to stop being a jerk when he gets married, more than likely. Like, there's, I heard this phrase, I forget where I heard it, but you don't stumble into godliness, right? You don't accidentally become holy and righteous. It doesn't just happen, right? So, while you're not necessarily at the point of marriage, you are a Christian, and sanctification is very real for you, and so striving and growth before you get to that point is a wise thing to do. So as you look at these ideals, as you look at these characteristics of who God is and how we are to reflect that, 
why not strive for it now before you have to struggle through the pain of a, of a, of a hard marriage? Why not strive for it now before you struggle through the pain of being a bad parent? See, the, 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 way, the phrase I really like as we look at um, God's glory and our good and these, all these different areas of life is our good is a glorious byproduct of God's glory, right? Like we strive for, we long for, and we look towards the glory of God. And because of that, it is good for us. It is a glorious and beautiful byproduct that we experience the goodness and the beauty and the satisfaction and the joy of a healthy marriage, of a healthy family, of uh, whatever relationship it is. Um, and so that idea, that idea, as true as it is for families, it's true for work and vocation. It is for God's glory that we seek to conform to the designs he has for family, and it is for God's glory that we seek to conform to the designs he has for his work, too. And so let's look at the second half of our text. 3.22 through 4.1. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now that chunk of text, that is the, the what we're looking at tonight is um, what Paul gives most of his time to here and most of his explanation to, okay? And, as you read it, you probably hear the word bondservant. You know, maybe not sure what that is. Uh, really, if, as we're looking at that and as it applies to us today, we're just going to think employee. We're going to think work, okay? So as you read bondservant, think employee, right? And as you read masters, think boss, okay? And so as we read this, um, there are some cultural things happening with bondservants and masters, right? Like there's some debt repayment stuff and just some societal structures of how work works. But um, as we read it today, we work works. Thanks for laughing. Um, as we read it tonight, what we're looking at it, with, as regards to this section of scripture is employment, work, employee, employer relationships. Um, and to stretch that even a little bit further for you guys, as students, school is a form of work for you, right? It's kind of a job for you. And so within your jobs, you have your own campus um, or off campus. And as students, there are authority figures over you, right? There are, there are bosses, there are managers, there are professors, there are RAs, there are TAs. Um, there are structures of authority in your life in school and in work right now. And the reality is, is uh, uh, we, we don't really like that idea, right? Um, every single one of us is almost... One of us in here is almost exclusively a bond servant in these relationships that Paul's talking about. Not many of us are our masters. And so as you interact with your bosses, as your professors, your masters in the text, um, there is a God-glorifying way to interact with them, right? And that's what our text is talking about. Look at Colossians 3, 22 through 23. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Uh, in everything, obey with sincerity. That's like not at all 
how I have historically thought about my bosses, right? Like I've worked in retail, I've done construction, I've done a lot of different things. And that is not how I like to think about my interaction with my bosses. Sincerity, total and utter obedience in everything, right? And you might have an RA or a professor or boss that's kind of a jerk, right? That's a little dictatorial. Um, I know I do. Uh, my boss is Tyler, by the way, so that's why that's funny. Um, but what does verse 23 say about that interaction? What does verse 23 say about that interaction? Whatever you do, work heartily. As for who? The Lord. And not for men. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. It doesn't matter that your boss can sometimes be irrational, rude, dictatorial, frustrating. It doesn't matter that your professor can be a bad teacher and you expect perfection. It doesn't matter that your RA can be a hypocrite. In everything, obey your masters because you're working for the Lord and not for that master, not for that bad boss. You see, you put effort and energy and your everything into your work because not for your, not for your own sake, not for your boss's sake, but for the Lord's sake. And why? Why would we do that? Why does Paul tell us to put forth extreme effort? I say extreme because in everything is a phrase there. Obey in everything. Why does Paul tell us to give us this extreme effort? Read Colossians 23 and 24 one more time. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that, in the, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So you're working with maximum effort, not for men, but for God, and you're working for God. Why? For the inheritance, for the reward you are working for something of infinite value, something of greater value than an A, of greater value than a paycheck. And I understand this can be a little confusing. It, was, it, it is a little bit confusing. Even when I first read it, it was a little confusing, right? Like um, when we think of work, right, we think of earning something. We think of putting effort into an all-nighter to get a, a decent grade on that physics exam so that we can pass the class. And we think of work, we think of putting that however many hours at the good food store bussing tables because we need a paycheck, right? But that idea of earning is not how God designed work. That is not how work works in the kingdom of God. You see, we can read this text and see our inheritance and our reward as tied to how hard we work. And that is the wrong way to read this. The wrong way to read, the wrong way to read... The wrong way to read this is to see our inheritance and our reward is tied to how hard we work. Because we know as Christians that our reward isn't based on what we've earned and our inheritance isn't based on where we were born or what circumstances we were born into, but it's based on the work of Christ and what he was born into. Look at Ephesians 1.11 and Hebrews 9.15 with me. Hebrews 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined, been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So it is God's will that we receive this inheritance. It is something that he planned for us. And in Hebrews uh, 9.15, 
Therefore, he, that's Christ, is mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So it is, this inheritance is eternal. This inheritance is, is, um, is, is earned not by us, but by Christ, right? And so how can then, as Christians who have been redeemed, who have already been given this inheritance, the promise of this inheritance, how can we work for something that's already been earned? If Paul tells us to work for this inheritance, yet this inheritance has already been earned, if Paul tells us to work for this reward, that this reward has already been earned for us, how does that work? How can we understand that? Doesn't make a lot of sense as we understand work, right? Look back at Genesis 1, 28, and 2, 15, and 19 through 20, the first part of 20, all right? 128 says, this is the first work God gave man, and God blessed them, and God said to them, that is Adam and Eve, that is the first man and woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Look down to 2, verse 15 and 19 and 20. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now down to 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Work, when God first instituted it with Adam and Eve, had nothing to do with earning something, but had everything to do with responding to something. the very first job that man was given was an act of worship and response. It was worship through the tasks that God had set before him. And so this means you, as you look at your school, as you look at your probably not great job as a student, as you look at your future and your future vocation and your career, it should all be First and foremost, before it's a paycheck, before it's to support a family, before it's anything, it is an act of worship to the creator and designer, God. Whatever you are doing, you are doing to serve the Lord Christ, not to earn, but to worship. If you've been in even a single discipleship meeting around here, you've, you've heard us, you've been pushed in being more thoughtful about your faith and being more thoughtful about how you consider life and, and your faith. And that is effectively what Paul is telling us to do with work here. He's telling us to work heartily knowing that your inheritance comes from God. See, doing your work not as people pleasers, but for the Lord requires you to think differently. It happens in here. See, the thrust um, of, of, of what you're able to take from this text as far as work is concerned is how you think about your work. It's how you think about your future vocation and your school. It's urging you to think differently about your school, about your work, about your career, about its purpose, its function, and its role in your worship. 
It's not something you do for you. It's not even something you do for your family. It's first and foremost what you do for God. And the reality is sometimes work still blows, right? It's like stocking groceries, um, working in a movie theater, making grizz burritos, cleaning toilets, cashiering, whatever it is, especially as students, your work probably isn't fun right now. I, I can totally empathize with that. Um, and it can even be worse when you have bad bosses or bad professors, right? So this already poopy job gets even poopier when you have a bad boss, a frustrating boss, something, someone who doesn't appreciate you. And um, those of you going on project have probably heard uh, Garrett's story. I think when he was up here, he shared about his work experience this last summer and even the previous summer. Um, and he, I know he shared it in a Bible study a, a couple of weeks ago, but he, he worked at a movie theater on project. And basically he described himself as a glorified popcorn, popcorn popper that made minimum wage, which sidebar, minimum wage in California is $11. So that's not really something to complain about. But he was a glorified popcorn popper making minimum wage. And as he brought this up, his point was, um, though he was a glorified popcorn popper making minimum wage, and that's probably how a lot of people walking through there saw him, maybe even as his bosses saw him, he knew he was not a minimum wage human being. Because your value doesn't come from the specific work you do or how people see you doing that work or from culture defining the value of that work. Your value in your work comes from the one you're working for, which should be Christ. Read Colossians 3, uh, 25 with me. Uh, the end of chapter three, uh, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. Like I said, we have bad bosses sometimes. We have frustrating uh, authority figures and the reality is it's not our role to one, fix them and it's not our role to be their judge, right? God is judge. God is judge over all of that and as we defined, your value does not come from how your boss defines you or how your professor defines you, or what grade you get, but from whom you're working for. And the, this idea, like we have this idea in culture about work, that it needs to be fulfilling, right? We want a job that's fulfilling, that brings us satisfaction, that brings us personal, some kind of like uh, fulfillment, some satisfaction that I'm doing something worthwhile. But as this text tells us, the holy grail of a career isn't something's fulfilling. The holy grail of work is work that's worshipful. See, even when your bosses stink, even when you don't like your job, even when you, your, your, your school and career are frustrating to you, in whatever way, the value of it is determined by who you're working for and who you should be working for is the Lord Christ. Um, so what about, what about bosses and masters? That's our last verse here. Um, verse, chapter four, verse one. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. All right, so in the same way, marriage and par- parenting are a little bit foreign in this text. So is this idea because not a lot of us in here are masters, right? Not, of us, not a lot of us in here are bosses or have authority. But here's, here, we at GCF, we are passionate about helping you guys grow as leaders. And we, I know that there are a handful of you in here, maybe more than a handful, that aspire to leadership, that aspire to being uh, philanthropic and, um, 
and, and leaders in business and in, in medicine and in law, whatever it is, there are probably a lot, in, a lot of you in here that aspire to that role of master, of leader. And we want to help you do that. Um, we want to help you grow in that. Absolutely. And actually, just as Tyler said, the, the, the deadline for our leadership application is the end of this week. So if you are at all interested in growing as a leader and serving as a leader, apply for that. Because um, as we look at this right here, this idea of being a master, that is this very specific way that you can begin to grow in your capacity as a leader. Um, so with this idea of, of, of leadership, of being a master and a boss, something I think that would be really unique and special in our culture is if Christians were known for being scandalously sacrificial leaders. Scandalously sacrificial leaders. Scandalously in that it is totally and utterly countercultural and sacrificial in that you are laying down yourself and everything about your leadership for the sake of those you're leading. What this looks like is a boss, is an employer, is a business manager who isn't growing his business so he can get a larger paycheck, so she can get a larger paycheck, but so she can pay her employees more. So she can employ more people and pay their employees better. A sacrificial master and leader is one who peppers everything they do with grace and mercy and love because how God, how, what God's justice looks like is the cross, right? That the, the, the way God tells masters to treat their bondservants is just and fair because you too have a master in heaven. Well, how has our master treated us as Christians? The perfect justice was found on the cross, which is sacrificial, which is grace, which is mercy. And so then to reflect that as a master is to be sacrificial, is to be merciful, is to be gracious. Now, to put a bow on this whole, this whole text here, uh, the common thread, I think, as we see, as we look through all of these instructions, these do's and don'ts, is that I think in almost every way, we don't do the do's and do the don'ts. In almost every single one of these. Each of us thinks we know better than God. Each of us thinks we are the masters of our own ship. The oh, Masters of our own. Did I screw that up? I screwed that up, didn't I? Masters of our own ship, captains of our soul. Yeah, there it is. Each of us thinks we are the masters of our own ships and the captain of our own soul. And these, we do, we do the don'ts and we don't do the do's in here. And um, the reality is at the bottom we, we find ourselves at the bottom of this funnel, right? The bottom of this funnel of Colossians. And, and as we look at the, the practical implications of these huge truths, as we look at those, it is the designs of Christ, it is the lordship of Christ that we are submitting to in those moments. You see, this passage is a brief and yet profoundly and relationally relationally important distillation of what it means that Christ is above all, before all, in all, creator of all, whom all was created for. See, your submission to the lordship of Christ in family and work relationships is what it means to follow Christ in all of life, as our Colossians theme is. So the call then for you 
because work is probably the most applicable in this text, is to think differently about your school. Think differently about work. Think differently about your poopy job. Because none, um, none of those work, relationships, school, are your ultimate purpose, but are all means to which you can achieve your purpose, which is to glorify Christ. So work for a purpose greater than yourself. Work for the purpose you were designed for. And I want you to consider, as you look at that list again, how obedient are you to what Paul is calling you to in that text? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word again. It's uh, uh, a tough text with hard ideas, countercultural ideas, and um, ideas that we are not naturally prone to obeying. So Lord, I pray um, as we don't stumble into godliness that we would strive for godliness, Lord. And then in our relationships and in our work, we would submit to the lordship of Jesus, to the rule of Christ, to the designs of Christ, and to the glory of Christ. Lord, help us to see the, our work and our school and our careers and our vocations as something special that we can use to worship and point to the greatness and the glory and the beauty of Jesus. It's in your name we pray.